Kenzie Bath, welcome to the Sick Food Camp Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, Kenzie, you know, it, it is appropriate that we have you here for a lot of different reasons. Uh, we've been really excited about having this young author and 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 activist and uh and 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 entrepreneur and 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 all you I mean you just you are a polymath on so many different levels which you're gonna get into. And that's why we had you on this very special anniversary for Tick Bootcamp. This is our four hundredth episode at Tick Bootcamp. So uh, Kenzie, thank you for joining us for this episode. And why don't you download for the folks some of the things that you have going on? Because there are just so many I couldn't list them all. But I want to begin with your book and talk about uh, what inspired the book. And then talk to us about uh, about your work with the Global Lyme Alliance. And then sort of build out for us some of the things that you're doing professionally. Sure. Thank you, Rich. Um, um, that is just a glowing introduction. I'm so honored um, to be on Tick Boot Camp, and I'm so excited to share a little bit about my story and hopefully inspire those that are struggling through chronic illness, especially tick-borne illness. Um, so to get started, uh, I am more than um, excited about being number 400. So I just wanted to start, uh, state that and put my little like star up there. Yes, number 400. Um, last year, I did um, I dedicated as a portion of my time to write a book called The Ignored Pandemic, Real Stories of Lyme Disease. You can get it on Amazon. And basically what this book is, it's it's nothing like anything out there currently in the Lyme published space. Um, it's it's kind of Lyme 101. It get to know if you're di recently diagnosed, a caregiver, um, and you want to learn more about Lyme, this is the book to go to. Um, in addition, it's a collection of stories from people from all around the world because this is a global pandemic, um, not something that's just, um, you know, prevalent in the East Coast, but obviously I'm in the West Coast and I have Lyme. So I wanted to showcase something that was a little bit more global and a little bit more impactful. And it was something um, that I was super passionate about was telling other people's stories that maybe don't have the means or the opportunity uh, to publish. So this is my third published book, but my only one specifically to Lyme disease. And I was told in school, I, I did not do well in English. I was a terrible speller and a terrible dictator, and I was never going to do anything in the English space. So the fact that I even published a book was a huge success for me, but more so publishing in the Lyme space and bringing light um, to those suffering and really helping people was even better. Uh, so I'm super excited about that. And I am just a busy bee. I'm a mom of three, one, two, and four. I have a full-time job in as a VP of strategic innovation. So I work on um, hospitality development from ground up builds to renovations. I oversee a, a team of 10 for our private um, hospitality management and ownership group. And then I also sit on the board of the Global Lyme Alliance, which is a huge passion for me. I was the gala honoree last year at the 2023 gala, and I hit my fundraising goal, was super excited about that, but moreover excited to get to meet new people in the Lyme space, especially internationally. And I'm very eager and very motivated to make big changes for GLA um, in the Lyme space and for the Lyme community overall. Um, hopefully increasing our funding to get better, to get 
uh, more funding to research and getting answers for those suffering. Um, and then additionally, I started my own nonprofit here locally called Impact 100 Orange County, which we give $100,000 grants to local nonprofits in the area to help um, uh, just bring our communities out of, um, you know, underserved populations. So I'm super excited about all the things I do. I'm super blessed. And it is a miracle that my resume is where it's at um, from my experience with Lyme. So let's talk about um, before the miracle, the time before the miracle, and uh, and what would your life was like as a young child. And I don't want to focus on your health yet because your Lyme disease journey did start during your childhood. But just tell us about what your childhood was, childhood was like. Where did you grow up and what kinds of things were you thinking and dreaming about um, during your childhood? Sure. Um, I grew up in Southern California, Orange County, my whole life. So I have never really left. Um, obviously I've traveled quite a bit, but never really left my hometown and, um, life was pretty bliss. I'd have to say I was more of the person I am today than the majority of my life. I was, I was very energetic. I'm a Leo. I love to connect with people. I love going out. I love, I love a good, um, a good party and excuse to dress up. Um, I, my passion was more in music and dance. I was more of an artsy kind of kid. I didn't really resonate with traditional education so more so. And I really loved just impacting people. I always felt like I was like the counselor of the group, um, trying to, you know, bring people up and stay motivated. And I was the cheerleader and like, you know, the song leader and all that pep, um, always entertaining. Even when my parents had parties, they'd always laugh like, oh no, Kenzie, here she comes, like putting on another performance for our family, like our friends or family. Um, and then, you know, uh, everything changed greatly. But as a young kid, I, I really was full of life and really enjoyed like the simplicity. I loved being outdoors, um, loved being in the water, would go to the beach a lot and spent a lot of time with my family and um, my nanny, who is, she was from Guatemala, so I had a lot of um, influence to the Latin culture as well. So that's kind of part of me, too, um, which I love. So what, what during this earlier phase of your childhood, when you were discovering the artsy side of your creativity, um, what is it that you envisioned yourself doing? My dream was to live in New York and be a Broadway dancer. Like that was what I wanted to do. If I wasn't gonna be like famous for any one reason, I, I couldn't sing for the life of myself. So even though I was born in the same year of Taylor Swift, I wasn't gonna fit in her shoes, <laughs> but I definitely had uh, the stage present and the um, talent to dance and move. And so movement and and expressing emotion through my body was just came natural to me. Um, that's kind of how I got through a lot of my teen years. And I always wanted to go to Juilliard or, you know, a top dance school, live in the city um, and be on Broadway and just tour and just live my dream through through dance. So you had some challenges pretty early on in your life. I think you were as early as nine or 10 years old when you started to have your, your health challenges. So why don't you share with us uh, how that presented uh, to you and your family? Yes. So it wasn't as apparent to me right away, but definitely to my parents. Um, 
something my mom always describes it as like her little bubbly girl just like her lights were on and then like the flip the light switch like flipped off and then it was just dark and she didn't recognize me um like she used to and it started slowly with um random like illnesses like I kept getting colds and like rashes and you know weird kind of physical um uh issues and that stuff we were just trying to deal with through medication or antibiotics or whatever but it wasn't really helping it was getting worse and then she noticed um a big decline in my ability to focus and pay attention and retain information in school and then being able to communicate what I was trying, what I was learning at the level that other kids were were doing that. And so I spent a lot of time um, kind of, you know, in somewhat developmental classes trying to um, bring me up to speed at the same level other kids were learning and I just wasn't learning as fast. Um, so that was a big challenge for me. Um, granted, my my brother, who is like an AP student, graduates with a master's from Notre Dame, like a double domer, like super smart in debate, you know, um, I was the complete opposite. I could barely pass like an English class, for example. And my concentration just wasn't there. I kept getting um, an over overflowing sense of anxiety every time I would have to present or do an essay or take a test or any sort of like very minor level stress felt like the world was ending for me um, and then started to become more and more uh, fatigued, um, not wanting to go to school, um, trying to shy away from friends and, and social interactions. Um, it was draining to be around people, which was not my natural personality whatsoever. Um, and then it progressed even more into pain where I was competing. I was a dancer. I was competing and I couldn't finish routines and I would be in bed after practice for hours or just like sleeping all the way through halfway the next day. Um, I couldn't get out of bed and, and the doctors, you know, cause we, I was fortunate to have parents that were actively trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Um, but the doctors, you know, would, would normally say, Oh, well, she, you know, she's a teenager. She's my favorite was she's dramatic. Um, you know, she's depressed. She has anxiety or, you know, she's kind of making it up. She needs attention. Um, or maybe she's just working out too hard, but I was a teenager. It was like, I wasn't, my body should have been able to sustain it. I was also super healthy, um, at that time, surprisingly more so than I was as a kid. Um, Cause I started to realize my body was reacting to certain things and I was very cautious about that. So um, the, the decline at first felt gradual and then it became more and more so as I hit like my teen years um, and, and started going through puberty and my body changing and my hormones changing and then everything changed. It was like, I just, I didn't recognize myself Um and the depression got so bad that, you know, I got to a point that I didn't think life was worth living anymore. Um, and, you know, I've even had that point after after my diagnosis as well. But it was um, nine or 10 years before I, I got an answer. So I suffered for 10 years just not knowing uh, what was going on with me and having, you know, 
a rotating door of doctors telling me it was one thing or another, putting me on medications, putting me on hormones, trying to, you know, um, alter my natural state just to get me through a time period that was just not natural for me. So there was, it was a very dark time and not many answers, but um, definitely a learning time for me to be very self-aware about what was going on with my body. So let's talk about the doctors first. Uh, how many different doctors did you see and from what disciplines uh, were these doctors from? I don't remember the actual number because a lot of that process is such a blur to me. And my mother would be as the caregiver. She was such a big influence in that space. But I mean, it was at least 20 to 30 doctors. I went from every I went to, you know, traditional practitioners to naturopathics, to homeopathics, to acupuncturist. Um, and that was kind of later on when we started to do more natural. Um, I went to neurologists, uh, psych psychologists, psychiatrics. Um, uh, I, I was just trying anything. Like my parents were trying anything to just find what was wrong with me. And for a long time, they thought it was just hormones. And so I was on special hormone therapy and then um, the um, psychiatric, they were more like, no, she, it's like more mental, um, you know, uh, mental illness. She really needs to get treated. She needs to get medication. She needs to like control her emotions because this is not natural. Um, and that's why she's having all these phantom pains and headaches and concentration and brain fog. It's just because of this, the mental illness piece. So the mental illness was a big portion of probably the larger portion of my struggle, um, you know, pain and, and muscle fatigue and body aches and weakness was kind of something I had a high tolerance for, but the mental capacity, the mental illness piece, I didn't have a high tolerance for. I didn't like the feeling of of being out of control of my emotions and and not being able to figure out what was going on that was like the biggest fear but um it was all different type of all different doctors and it felt like as i went into one office and it was like a 3 hour appointment and cost $600 I would get very little out of it besides a bag that cost another $600 of supplements. And my counter was just full of supplements. And it was exhausting because I didn't know what was working. I was sick all the time too from taking supplements. I couldn't even eat enough to keep up with like the nausea from the supplement piece. And I potentially had allergies to what I was taking because there's, you know, 14 plus things in one bottle. Um, and then, you know, I, I did detoxes, I did, um, you know, a slew of different things at the beginning of my, of the diagnostic phase, um, that was just, you know, lots of medication too, uh, that was just very, very detrimental on my health overall. So Kenzie, one of the things that we've seen in every one of these podcasts is that uh, overwhelming fatigue is one of the elements that everyone on this journey has. And, and I think that's pretty well developed and everyone's really comfortable talking about that piece. But the other piece that we've seen with every one of these podcasts is that we find that our folks have a very sensitive trigger, meaning uh, meaning going from the 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 uh, parasympathetic expression of their nervous system to the 
to the to the sympathetic expression of their nervous system or fight or flight becomes becomes th that trigger becomes very very sensitive and almost everything triggers you into fight or flight and almost everything puts you in a position where your emotions are um you know overwhelming whether it be fight flight freeze faint or fawn so it sounds to me like the way from the way you're describing this you had a very very sensitive trigger and almost everything sent you into the um the sympathetic expression of your nervous system so why don't you talk to us about that and how your doctors were were dealing with um you know these extreme emotional responses you were having i love the way you put it um because it's true there was there is triggers um, and that's kind of part of the, the emotional journey as well, even on the healing path. And I think, um, doctors became a trigger for me even more so than dealing with, you know, the emotions of my family. Like my family didn't understand what was wrong with me. And they're like, can you just stop? Like, you know, like snap out of it, you know, grow up, like, you know, what is, you know, just communicate with us. And, um, that was just heartbreaking but then going to doctors who you're trusting and believe in and think that they have answers for you and they don't. And they're, they almost, there was part times where I felt like they were making me sicker trying to solve a, a problem. They, I knew nothing about, um, looking back and they were probably only doing the best they can. And I'm, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, but I think that was a big trigger for me too. And they didn't know. Um, I only had, one physician tell me vulnerably that they didn't know what was wrong with me. And that was disappointing to me because I understand being a physician and, and going through med school and you have this professional degree and people are trusting that you're making decisions based on, you know, your education and, and what you understand about the human body. But nobody, no physician was vulnerable enough to be like, I don't know, or maybe I should recommend you to this person. They were more focused on solving the issue and it being under their umbrella. Like the issue had to deal with them. Like if it was neurological or if it was hormonal, it was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what's going on. It's your thyroid or this is what's going on. It's, you know, it's, it's depression or whatever it may be. And those were all labels and they wouldn't stop and say, look, I, I noticed you continue to go from doctor to doctor to doctor and you're not getting answers. I'm seeing a pattern here. That was like the first time I had a physician after this was probably seven years into it when she said, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I know it's not you. And based on the pattern, no child wants to go in and out of doctors that often um, trying to seek answers. And obviously no parent wants to be dumping, you know, endless money um, without answers. And so she was very transparent and very vulnerable with me. And I think I just broke down and I was like, thank you. Like, thank you for listening to me. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to, to keep up with the routine with her. And I had to continue to seek a, a professional that specialized in the Lyme space and LLMD but it was, that was like a really opening experience that I was like, oh, finally, like someone's actually being honest about, you know, their ability. And that vulnerability actually created more respect for me um, to that physician. And then I learned, um, and this kind of answers your question, but kind of, kind of uh, digresses. 
I did learn that I have to be my own advocate with the physicians because I was being triggered by them. And because I was being triggered by people's comments, I had to get educated and be my own advocate um, for my health to be able to make it through that dark time and to be able to empower myself with the right questions and not blindly trust um, a professional that I assumed was going to have my best interest in mind. So Kenzie, let's focus on that for a second, right? Because one of the things that we always want to help our folks with is to find out how they can be, how they can be less fragile, right? Because you want to be anti-fragile when going through this process and, and Lyme, which is an ancient bacteria, which has evolved in a number of different, very sophisticated ways, is very good at um, breaking down our system. But Lyme disease recognizes that if, they, if it makes us emotionally fragile, if it makes our trigger very sensitive, that it is going to be immunosuppressive. And I believe that that's part of the way Lyme disease has evolved, or the Lyme bacteria has evolved, in a number of different ways, including the way it works with other other um, other microbes, right? So, but one of the things that you were able to do to combat the fragility that comes along with having very sensitive triggers is that you became competent. You learn more about yourself. You learn more about how to advocate for yourself, and you learn more how to communicate with doctors. So, talk to us about how your competence made you less fragile and put you in a position where you were able to get better results when you're interfacing with your healthcare professionals. So this might be a little difficult to hear, but I started going into appointments and, and I'm going to just set the stage. This is like seven years in, right? So I'm, I'm almost got my diagnosis. I don't, I still don't know what's going on. I kind of believe some other diagnosis, but from other things, and maybe it's a combination of things. Um, but I started to question if if the physician was correct. And I went in with less trust, which majority of us go in blindly trusting our doctors, right? And this is just in, in a global sense. I'm, I'm just talking kind of global. But I went in with less trust and I said, you know what? I, there is a reason I'm dealing with this and I want answers and I don't have the strength to seek those answers. So I started to lean on my mom to help advocate for what I was feeling. So I became more vulnerable with her because I, I was also a teenager. So a teenage girl is not really sharing everything she feels with her mother. Right. So I, I knew I had to seek help to also come in competent that I, that I couldn't communicate and get the words out appropriately to the physician because they looked at me like sometimes I felt they were looking at me like she's just stupid. Like she doesn't know what's going like, you know, she is incompetent, so to speak. But my mother, you know, she had she was a professional. She came in, you know, well spoken. She was healthy. So they were listening to her. So I started to be vulnerable with her and sharing what I needed from her and asking for that support. And she would attend every appointment with me and take notes. And she was a very good note taker. And then I would look at those notes afterwards and start to put together patterns because I wasn't able to process what the physician, like the doctors were saying in the moment, especially three hours of like what they think is, you know, MD jargon. And I would start going back and I'd be like, oh, interesting. Like that other physician, you know, that other doctor mentioned that drug or that other doctor said that or 
you know, I, I kept repeating this one thing that I, that became like, what's your top symptom? I kept seeing this like repetitiveness. So utilizing her tools and her capabilities became making me more knowledgeable about what was going on with me and also validated that it wasn't me because obviously there's a part in your journey where you're like, you start believing like, maybe I am crazy. Like maybe, maybe I like depression is like taking over my body and it's causing all these problems or maybe anxiety. I'm going to be anxious for the rest of my life. Like it is me. I'm the problem. And you start to become obsessed about that thinking. But I was fortunate that something bigger than me just told me, no, stop, like, don't go there. Like you gotta, like, you gotta figure this out. And a part, a portion of that, again, I was lucky because my mom was there to support me. So she obviously cared enough to say, Hey, like, we're going to figure this out. Now she didn't know how to, she didn't know how to navigate me. She didn't know the right answers, but at least someone cared enough to say, Hey, it's worth the time. Like we're going to put the time into figuring this out. Um, and there's a whole story of burdening yeah, caretaker too, but that's a separate thing. But um, to answer your question, I had to learn utilizing her tools. So I didn't have to ask for help. I had to be vulnerable. I had to get support. And I recommend anybody that's recently diagnosed or, or has chronic illness, you have to have your support system and have someone come with you um, and, and understand what you're going through in some capacity. And that's kind of why I wrote this book too, because you know, many caregivers or friends or family around you, when you get a diagnosis, they don't know what Lyme disease is. And so they're, and you don't really want to, like, you don't even know how to explain it yet. Maybe you're learning too. And so it's great to have the resources to be able to tell them, this is what I have. This is what I'm suffering with. I'm not sure what my plan is. I'm working on it. But if you could help me with this, you know, even making a meal for me, doing a meal, a meal train or coming to an appointment with me and taking notes because I don't even have the capacity to listen or asking a question. So seeking help made me more competent and, and willing to continue to show up and listen to the feedback, even though I wasn't sure if I trusted all the feedback, if that makes sense. It does. It makes perfect sense. So recently, I listened to a podcast uh, with uh, with a former CIA agent named Andrew Bustamante. He has a podcast named uh, The Everyday Spy. And one of the things he recently taught was that at CIA, they do not believe there's something called confidence. Confidence cannot be measured. And his argument is that it, they believe it doesn't even exist. And it really is just a misunderstanding of what you, we really have, which is competence right? Confidence doesn't exist, but competence does exist. And when you were telling the story about how you became, you know, your own advocate, you shared with us a sort of an action plan that you had taken where you needed someone to help you, in this case, your mom, deal with the issue of competence until you yourself became competent. You had to rely on her competence, and then you became competent. And when you became competent, you could advocate for yourself. So, Let's revisit what you just shared with us in the context of the way Bustamante argued this, which is that there's no such thing as confidence. It's really just competence. I love that. It's a mouthful. So let's see if I can if I can say those two words in one sentence. No, I'm kidding. Um, very skilled. I I've never heard that, but I would definitely agree with it. And more uh, like it just resonates currently in like 
my career because when you sit at the table educated, you naturally feel more confidence, right? And when you have, when you're armed with the facts and you're armed with, with the ability to respond and you're prepared for the response, you don't feel like you showed up halfway. And so I would agree. I think uh, education, advocacy, um, you know, uh, competence brings about confidence and that natural growth and knowing that, okay, now I'm becoming an expert in my space. So I'm more comfortable being open about it. And I'm more comfortable, you know, not shying away from it. So really what, what, what confidence is, is a base level of competence. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that. I think that's great. And it, it's true in all different aspects of your life. Another issue I'd like to explore with you is uh, this concept of it's all in your head or it's my fault. You, you know, you you, sh- you said that you were feeling those emotions based on a number of different factors that you were dealing with. And one of the things that I find really frustrating about that, that uh, perspective that's imposed on us in many cases by doctors is that when we interviewed Dr. Leo Shea, who's one of the top Lyme disease psychologists in the world, he argued that every single psychological symptom is actually, in fact, um, based in some physiological illness, and that it really that that a, a, a an expression of, of 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 emotional illness has a root, and it is physiological. So it almost seems to me that when when a doctor is is imposing upon a patient this concept of it's all in your head or it's your fault, really what the doctor is doing is saying, I don't know what's wrong with you. I can't figure out what the root is. So what I'm going to do is make myself feel better by 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 giving you a label that allows me to be released from being creative and thoughtful and getting to the root of what is really going on with you. We're gonna call, we're gonna call your symptom your fault. Yes. And it kind of, that dovetails back to what I was explaining too, where the, in that example, the doctor is not being vulnerable enough and not being honest enough to say, I don't know what is wrong. They're saying, well, because I don't know what is wrong, I'm going to blame you and say, well, maybe it's you, maybe you're, you're a problem. Right. And but but remember saying that Kenzie, the, the, you know, again, and maybe it is some mental health issue, right? Really? But what they're really saying is, not only am I not brave enough to admit that I don't know what's wrong with you, I'm too lazy to try to get to the root. I'm going to call this symptom uh, the the disease rather than a symptom of the disease, which then imposes upon me the duty to figure out what it's a symptom of. But it, could it be laziness or could it be confidence? Like back to the fact that they're uneducated about, they really are, it's an unknown to them. Because the majority of physicians I go back to today they, when I tell them about my story or they see me in passing or whatever, they're like, I had, I didn't, I've never heard of that. And they kind of like, um, they kind of like let themselves off the hook, like, because they didn't know it's like, they don't feel bad or like maybe because the system didn't teach them about something. They didn't have like the label for it. I don't know. I, I would, I'm, I'm not a physician and, you know, I thought about it 
Trust me. I thought about it. Um, I think you're being kind. And the reason I think you're being kind is on this podcast, we've interviewed some of the pioneers, many of the pioneers in the Lyme disease space. Um, long before we even had a definition of what Lyme disease is, there were doctors like Dr. Viroscano um, and Dr. McDonald here on Long Island who were treating patients before there was a treatment protocol. They were treating patients and diagnosing pa patients before there was before there was a, a term. And they came up with treatment protocols. Why? Because they were well-trained as physicians and as well-trained physicians, they were able to make observations about something that was new and they were able to come up with a treatment plan because they were creative and because they were brave and then because they were courageous, they were willing to do this. So I, I quite frankly, am not as kind as you and I'm not willing to give all these doctors who claim they were not trained in Lyme disease a pass. Because yeah. there were pioneers before this disease even had a, even had a label that uh, that were able to very successfully treat patients until, of course, the you know the 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 medical board shut them down for treating people yeah. uh, the way they needed to That's be treated. That's a shame. Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, I understand um, what your what your perspective is. I think for me, I'm just. I also want to be whole, like, they're also humans. And even though they didn't serve me correctly, and I could be, you know, really upset at them. And there's times I am and there's times and I don't think you, I don't think that's going to serve you to, to be upset. It doesn't. No, it doesn't serve me. But I think everybody has their limitation, right? And maybe that was the struggle for me is I was I was a unique case. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times like, you know, even when I got my diagnosis um, and I, I knew what I had and I went to a specialist, I was still a unique case. I mean, because I've had, you know, I've also had this bacteria take over my body for 10 years and they're like, we don't even know what we're going to be cutting into kind of thing. Right. They don't even know what what layer of the onion to peel. And this is back in 2009. I mean, protocols in anywhere in the West Coast were not existent, like non-existent. I didn't get diagnosed here in California. I got diagnosed in a different state. That's how weak the the education and the confidence around Lyme disease was. And I still think it is today, unfortunately. So Kenzie, let's talk about that, right? We, we, we've hinted now a couple of times that you, 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 were, you were finally diagnosed. Uh, but before you got your diagnosis, did you suspect Lyme or did any of your doctors suspect Lyme or anybody in your family suspect Lyme disease before you finally got your diagnosis? Uh, no. Uh, not that I remember. We did not um, suspect it or find it in our research. Um, however, my situation was very godly. Um, uh, I'd like to share. My family is involved in this organization, this Catholic organization, and my parents do these, um, they go to these events and I, I never go to them. Um, and this one night, my dad was out of town and my mom was going to the event to support. And she said, hey, Ken, do you want to come with me? And she knows, like, I'm laid up in bed. She's like, the last thing I want to do is socialize with a person because I didn't like, like, I couldn't socialize at the time at all. I was very, I was fatigued by it um, and and scared. I had, I had social anxiety. And she said, there's a doctor speaking. And I know how much you love this stuff because I became so obsessed learning about how to heal myself, um, mostly more with natural 
um, elements, not as much with like the, the, you know, traditional sense or the allopathic sense. I was really going alternative. So I was, I was seeking a lot of alternative knowledge. So she said, you know, this, this physician, he's somewhat alternative and allopathic. And I think you'd find it really interesting. And I said, okay, fine, I'll go with you. Like I kind of, I really more felt bad that she was going by herself. So I was like, well, you've done so much for me. I'll go for you and do this for you. And she didn't want to go by herself. So I go and we're sitting there. I'm the only like kid. I mean, I really was a kid, but they're all adults. And Dr. Dino Pratt stands up and he um, runs Invita Medical Clinic. And he is sharing about like what they're doing in Invita in Arizona and about all these new treatments and, you know, uh, their successes with cancer patients. And then he talks about Lyme disease. And literally, I can remember this moment from that day. My mom was sitting there. I get chills. I thinking about it. And he started talking about it and listing the symptoms and the type of patients coming through his office. And I turn white and I start to like tear up and like, I get very quiet. I wasn't talking or socializing anybody, but like, I even like, I stopped breathing almost to the point, point, like my, I was stunned listening to this. I was like, oh my God, is he talking to me? And I look at my mom and I grab her hand and she looks at me and I said, mom, this is what I have. Like I knew immediately and I just started crying. And immediately after his talk, we went direct, like we bombarded him. And I've never done that in my life. Um, and I'm even conservative about doing it today because I know how crazy people are. But I bombarded him and I was like, I have this. I need to like figure, like my mom was, we were just so emotional about it. And so that's when we suspected it. And then I went to Arizona, did a three-day um, testing and got my results about a month or so later. We're going to have your doctor on this podcast in the next actually couple of weeks. So we're going to, we're going to get his perspective on how crazy Kenzie came up to him at a, at a, uh, at an event, what it was like from his perspective. I wonder if he'll remember it, but it was so funny because I'm sure he will. It was really outside of like his realm. Like, I don't really know why he was talking at this event and it was more like religious, but they were doing some educational thing and he was in California, but he's really in Arizona. It was a godly thing. It was like, yeah, there he, was, he was there for you. Yeah, he was there for me. And I, I do believe that. And it's changed my life. And I've connected with so many people through it. And at the time, too, you have to re remember what they're doing today was not what they were doing then. So I was also part of that growing process for Lyme, but they had a name for it. And that was a relief. You cheer and get so excited, right? You you call it the, the um, epiphany, right? And then the next chapter kicks in. All right. So let's pause there for a second. Um, so, you, so you have this 10-year journey uh, where you're chronically ill. Um, despite being a, a young adult, you're, um, you know, you're so sick that you're not out, you know, at all. You have no social life. Um, you know, it's so bad that your mom is just dragging you to a, uh, a Catholic, um, you know, a, a, a Catholic lecture, uh, yes. that only old people like I go to, <laughs> uh, and, and there you are meeting, meeting the person that helps you to get the diagnosis which has now led you to so many really wonderful things uh, as a result. So, so uh, give us that, that, that little piece before Matt takes you through the diagnosis. Um, 
and what you did after the diagnosis. Uh, so you now knew in your spirit that you you had a diagnosis. Um, you now had, tell me about, you know, how, how that affected you emotionally and how that helped you to get to Invita so you can go for the testing that would confirm your diagnosis. Sure. So let me paint a picture for a minute here. I'm a senior in high school and I go to this event, right? So then when I knew that was it, like I, there was a piece of me that just was solidified without a diagnosis, but I had to obviously prove it. Um, we set a time to go to Arizona. I've never been to Arizona in my life. And um, we do this three-day thing. It was very invasive, cutting pieces of my hair, blood sample, like you name it. They got it from me. They could totally take my identity. And um, I, um, I'm finishing up school and I'm going off to college and it was really difficult to get into school for me. I had to really step up my game junior and senior year to the point where I um, had, you know, just an undescribable anxiety and stress um, that put me in debilitating situations on top of that. But you were, um, you were able to grit through all that and get into a great school. You went to Purdue, right? Well, yes, I started at Chapman though. So I started at Chapman. I didn't get to Purdue until after my treatment. So I started at Chapman, which is a great school in Orange. And I'll never forget the first day of school. I was like, I'm not going to survive this. And I had to drop out. And I wasn't, I'm a, I want to be a college student. I've been in high school, right? And high school sucked. And I was like, okay, I'm ready for the next chapter. And I was too ill. And I had to drop out. And then that, like, I got my diagnosis the summer going into my freshman year of college and then ended up having to drop out, going to Arizona, living there with my mom for three months. Uh, my boyfriend, who is now my husband at the time, I told him, like, hey, not going to work. Bye. Go find a girlfriend that you can marry and da, 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 because that's not going to be my life. I'm, like, now going to go off to Arizona and deal with this chronic illness. And I didn't know what that meant. Right. So I kind of tried to cut all ties. Um, and he was a sweetheart and he's been a rock for me. And he said, I'll be here waiting for you. So I'm, I'm very blessed, but I, I left school, but I didn't want to fall behind in school. My parents are educators and they've started schools and teachers and everything else. And so school was very important to them. So I was going to school online and I got my bachelor's in holistic medicine because I was studying what I was dealing with. I wanted to find more answers. I was still untrusting of doctors. And I that was a really difficult time having to drop out of college. I never got the college experience. I never got the real high school experience. I never built those social skills um, with younger adults. And I... I still struggle to this day, but I think I do a pretty good job with just um, general small talk. Like it, it was hard. Whoa, 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 Kenzie, I just have to say something here, okay? So yeah. for everybody, I'm going to throw myself under the bus here. I was about five minutes late to the podcast. I was on my phone in my car driving home. So me and Kenzie had a nice chat offline just to get to know each other for the first five minutes while I was driving home. And at the end of the five minute conversation, I said, oh my goodness, Kenzie, you're an amazing public speaker. I can't wait to start this podcast. And your response was, Really? I never thought that. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, are you kidding me? So the fact that you're saying this, the contrast here is just so, is so great. So I just had to weigh in with that well, little, uh, add a little story. I'm sorry, please continue. 
Oh, thank you. Well, that I was, yeah, I guess that's something I need to be, you know, grow on is my, um, my respect for self. Cause it's something I've worked really, really hard on is to be able to communicate, um, effectively and efficiently with people because I just lost that such a period of my time. I didn't talk to anybody for years and it, it's just, there's a skill there. Right. So thank you. So I, I want to put this into context, Kenzie, as well, right? So let's let's focus in this snapshot of time. You're 18 years old. It's a pivotal time in your life. You're graduating high school. You've been sick. High school is not a good experience. You're going to try to go to college. You have to drop out pretty quickly. And you're just getting your diagnosis the summer between high school and college. Before we get into that, your diagnosis and your treatment, just give us an idea of how sick you were. So obviously, the psychological impact we know that Lyme disease causes psychological symptoms. It's proven. It is a symptom of Lyme. Plus, when you're that sick, who wouldn't be depressed, right? But it's also a symptom and it gets compounded. I mean, I tell people, I never had anxiety my whole life. When I got Lyme, I couldn't believe I had my first panic attack. And I thought I was dying. I didn't know what was going on, right? So it's, it's there's that's real. So in addition to your, your psychological symptoms, what were some of your physical symptoms you had as well? You mentioned fatigue, but give us some details about your symptoms you had. Sure. Um the fatigue was so bad. I really couldn't get out of bed. Like even thinking about lifting my body, my body felt like a thousand pounds. It was just like laying there. And no matter how much I would try to tell my brain to just lift my arm, I couldn't do it. Um, and then I, I would have, I would have headaches. Um, even in the, even in dark, like in dark moments or I would get up and I would feel faint and have to like lay back down. So I had a lot of like, um, unequilibrium with like my blood pressure and my blood sugar. It was always like off. And even no, no matter if I ate, you know, salt intervals or whatever they told me to do, I was always kind of like in this daisy uh, or this dizzy, I'm sorry, dizzy space. Um, I also had a lot of joint pain, especially in my knees and ankles. Um, and I was hard, obviously being a dancer, I was hard on my body. So I I probably had some additional inflammation, but when Lyme kind of took over, it became like unbearable. Like I couldn't kneel at all, even getting down, like, cr like, uh, crouching down to pick something up. I couldn't even get up. I had to sit down and then like roll over and try to find a way to get up. I felt like I was just, you know, very, very frail and weak. Um, I wasn't able to like keep up with my normal workout routine. I would be like winded and had like heart palpitations and felt like I was going to like pass out or throw up. Um, I had a lot of stomach issues, like anything I ate, it was like, obviously now I can tell like gluten and dairy are definitely flares for me, but at the time it didn't really matter what I ate. If I ate like the healthiest thing, or I had a green juice, I would have, um, bloating, cramping, stomach pains, like irregular bowel movements, um, which also made high school really uncomfortable because it was like I couldn't really navigate that, you know, experience um, with trying to go, having to go to the bathroom and, you know, trying to be in class and balancing that. Um, and then I I had issues with my sight. My vision got really bad when I had Lyme. And it was interesting after treatment, my vision went 2020, which was like creepy. Now it's like starting to um get worse again. But I remember like specifically my vision started going even at like nine years old and I had to have glasses. It was weird. And um, I've had a lot of oral issues, which I never related to Lyme. I didn't really know that was related, but in my experience and research now, there's a lot to do with like the mouth and the Lyme bacteria. I had issues in Arizona too. 
um, with my mouth when I got treatment and I had a reaction and the whole thing happened. But I thought that was something I never knew that that was a symptom or a parallel. But I've had like rotting in at my mouth, even though I have good dental care and like hygiene. I had um, I have like less teeth than the average person because I had to keep having teeth pulled and removed. I've had braces like four times. It was just kind of really odd stuff that I didn't ever relate to Lyme. I had an abscess tooth um, that like swelled up my whole face. And again, it was like kind of just a weird thing. I get the flu every year, even with the flu shot. I got a cold every year, no matter how often. Um, you know, I was just, I was a weak body and I had a weak, you know, immune system. I was just weak all around. And to the point, like the depression, anxiety, my anxiety got so bad. I would not step foot in an elevator because I felt so claustrophobic. I wouldn't step foot on a plane. I got anxiety thinking about traveling anywhere. And, and granted, my my family was, they were big travelers. We'd go, you know, to New York all the time or other places. My dad's from Michigan. So traveling was part of our life. And I, if I knew that we were going to be traveling somewhere for months, I would be anxious about it, like sick to my stomach. Like it was just terrible. So debilitating anxiety whenever it came to interacting, public speaking, small spaces, like just kind of almost obsessive thinking about certain cir circumstances and situations. And that was probably one of the hardest things for me because I loved being around people, but I was so anxious about being around people. So I was like dying inside, not being able to do that. So after the 10 year window, you're 18, you go in the summertime to Dr. Dino Prado in Arizona at in Vita, right? And you test positive for Lyme and co-infections, I believe, that summer? Yes, all of it. Mm -hmm. Do you recall which co-infections? I don't recall. Um, this is also an 09, so we're in like 20, what, 24 now? <laughs> um, but I remember when they gave me, like, so they called me because I went home and they were like, hey, you have Lyme and, you know, this is what's kind of going on. My, they were going over my CD57 and all this stuff. And then um, I didn't really understand any of that, by the way, like what that meant at the time. And I'm still kind of even educating myself more because they're doing a lot more in the testing space. I did culture my Lyme. So it wasn't um, the traditional testing. They sent my uh, blood to Germany and they cultured it and it was positive. And then I was positive for like six of like the nine co-infections they tested at the time. It was, it, I know it was like over the ratio number. Um, and it was funny when I went there, they were even educating me at that time. They were like, you know, some of these co-infections are probably a bigger issue than Lyme itself. Um, but Lyme is kind of like the umbrella name for all of these tick-borne illnesses. Um, and so that's kind of what we were going to, you know, navigate. Uh, but it was, um, that was kind of something I was trying to learn too. So did you put off treatment to go to college or were you treating when you started college and had to drop out? Yeah. So I started college without making the decision to do treatment because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I was like, well, mom, maybe I can like fight through this. Right. Because I've been fighting for 10 years. So it's like, now what? And so I went to college and then I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Um, I ended up finishing the semester because I am very, I pushed through a lot. So I finished the semester 
and then ended up leaving. And then that's when we made the decision, like I needed to go get treatment. And at that point we left, we got treat, I got treatment after that semester. Um, Did and you say then, that you went back to online school to get your bachelor's in holistic health at the same time? Yes. So, so in I parallel, you're treating started. aggressively for Lyme and you went back to school online to get a bachelor's in holistic medicine, right? Yes. I'm a little bit of an overachiever. Yes. Yes. So can you walk us through what treatment protocol you are now doing? You're back home. You go to Arizona. You're treating with Dr. Dino Prado at Envita. You're taking online courses to get a degree in holistic medicine. What's the treatment protocol you begin with and how did you respond to it? Yeah. So, um, we lived there for three months in a two bedroom apartment, lots of fun stories there. Um, and, um, I had a pick line and I vulnerably, like my mother had to bathe me every night because I couldn't get my arm wet and it was very difficult. Um, I got much sicker during treatment than I was before. Um, and that was at the time they told me was part of the process because there was a die off and a Herxheimer reaction. I was getting everything from three different antibiotic IVs to high dose vitamin C, hydrogen peroxide, oxybosh. Um, I was doing um, 20 different supplements and two different detox powders. I was doing enemas every day. Um, ozone, I had to do like jaw, like I had to get uh, ozone shots in my jaw because I had systemic infection that came up. Like I was, I was mentioning before in my mouth, which at the time, like at the time we didn't understand the relation, but now makes a lot of sense that it was probably linked to, um, one of the Lyme bacterias, um, that was living in my mouth. And, um, I did infrared sauna as well. So I was doing all that from, I was in a chair from about 8 a.m. to 5 to 5.30 p.m. Sometimes they let me out on Friday around like four. And then the weekend I'd rest and recover and then go back to it Monday during the day. And so during the day, I would be online doing independent study, which I'm proud to say I graduated um, summa cum laude straight A's. Congrats. Uh, online school. And I was like one of 15 kids, one, one of 15 in a group of over 500 students that did straight A summa cum laude. So I was very smart. Who knew? <laughs> well, the fact that you did that while treatment going undergoing treatment and being so sick, I can't even imagine when I was at my worst, I couldn't even speak, never mind think about taking courses. So that just shows your perseverance and your drive. So kudos, you know, truly. Now, Envita is an interesting place because we've had a lot of people talk about it. The one that comes to mind is we had a heavy metal artist who was an international artist from Canada who traveled all around the world and, and was a very successful artist who went to Envita and had great success and talked about like the really rigid structure of treatment, how you go through a wide variety of protocols as you described. And there was one that was a combination of an insulin modulating drug, I believe in combination with antibiotics. Does that sound familiar? Is that something they did with you while you were there? No, I didn't do that while I was there. No. Okay. So, you know, yeah. And overall, she said it was a really good experience and it really got her health back. I mean, uh, I'm going to kind of jump ahead. Do you think Envita was a good place for you? Would you recommend it to people listening to this podcast? I know it's really expensive. It's a big commitment. You have to live there essentially either on site or on campus or, or somewhere close. Right. But was it worthwhile? Do you think it actually was, a, was an important part of your healing journey? 
Yes, but I do have, in full disclosure, they did want me to stay longer and I could not do it. Uh, at three months, I, I, I looked like death. Like I was just, I couldn't do it anymore. And I, I was probably pushing myself. And I think again, in 09, we were also trying to figure out more about what modalities would kill Lyme or kill like, you know, the co-infections. And so I felt a little bit at that time, we were still in the learning phases and wasn't, and I was a little bit of a guinea pig at the start of that, of that time. Now treatments greatly changed because I talked to, you know, patients that have been treated in the past five years and it, it looks different than even I went through. Um, even the antibiotic choices are different. And, um, but I do believe the, and I do think it was part of my healing journey. I had to do something. I had to do something drastic to make a change, even if it didn't completely cure me or heal me. I think it kickstarted the ability that I knew I could get to that point. And I ended up, you know, feeling better than I was, but obviously that wasn't the end for me. I had to go through two more rounds of treatment. Um, but Kenzie, you said, you said, you said at the end of the three months, you had to leave because you were so unwell and so sick. So were you feeling better at the end of that three month window? Well, I was very sick, but I knew some of the symptoms were better. Like I was, my body was just too weak. I, I I'm trying, I'm probably not doing the best. No, you, you answered that really well. And, and I'm, I'm asking you that because, it, you know, it's, I think it's an important concept, right? You recognize that some of your symptoms are either A, better or B, gone, but you were still really sick because yeah, I, was you, still you know, sick. I was weak, right? You were still very weak. And the reason I ask you this is when I reflect back on my own journey and many people that we have in this podcast reflect back, I always ask, what would you do differently? Right. And one of the ones I feel very strongly about in my own personal experience was I would want to strengthen my body before aggressive kill treatment yeah. first, right? And yeah. I didn't do that. And I think it was a fundamental flaw in my healing journey that would have maybe been a better step and I would have been able to get better quicker if I didn't, if I did that, right? So you were you were immune compromised, you were getting sick all the time. I mean, it was clear your immune system was tanked and it was clear physically and emotionally your body was just drained. And then you jumped into pretty aggressive kill protocols. And there was obviously there was detox tools too you mentioned, right? But I just wonder if you maybe looking back would have focused more on repairing your body, strengthening your immune system, strengthening your gut health, strengthening your liver, strengthening your nervous system, balancing out that fight or flight, as Rich described, because you were in constant fight or flight, probably about all things, you know, travel and health, et cetera, et cetera, built up your body foundationally and then went into a, a you know, a more strong kill protocol. I mean, what do you think about that? A hundred percent. You said it. Um, I, looking back, that would have been the best thing because I probably would have been the treatment would have been more successful, but I basically was already, you know, halfway dead. And then it was just like going in to kill the rest of me. And then at the end of it, I felt so weak and frail. I couldn't walk. I had to go to PT in a pool to just get my, like, you know, my ability back to like move my legs and my arms and carry like something that was 10 pounds. I, I was so frail and so sick. Um, and frankly, to a point that it it wasn't healthy, right? Like I, it was the the killing helped with a variety of symptoms. My anxiety was better, you know. My my mental clarity was better. My focus, but I was in bed still. And so, yeah, you're totally right. The body, my body was already weak going into it, and I sh I wish I was stronger. So walk us through what happens next. I mean, you're obviously learning a lot in your course. You're top of your class, super brilliant, getting this 
degree in holistic medicine. What are you doing after the three month window? You go home, you can't even walk, you're going to PT in a pool to learn, you know, to strengthen your body. What's coming next in your healing journey? And are you still treating with the doctors at Invita remotely or are you pivoting to a new care team at this point? Um, so at that point, I was still getting counsel from Invita doctors because I wasn't sure if I was going to be going back, but I did. I just needed a break. That's kind of what was in my head. I was like, I just need a break. This is a lot. Um, and I was away from my fam, like my other family, like my dad wasn't there and and my friends, and I was missing a lot. I just, that was also the the mental piece of it too, right? So that's that's another hard piece of like, when you're going into treatment for any chronic illness, um, it's also making sure you're balancing the things that fulfill you mentally too, um, that I, I wish I did more of. I kind of, I shied away from making any connections because I almost shut off the world and that wasn't healthy for me either. Um, but I... I was still getting counseling from Invita. I continued um, education online. I stayed at home and continued to just kind of strengthen my health person personally. As I was, as you mentioned, I was going to school for this. So I started doing a lot of holistic um, healing. I was doing like yoga and, and um, um, body strengthening with my own weight and, um, lots of supplements and then started really kickstarting a healthy diet. And I think that was the big, a big pivot for me. And then I'm trying to remember what that, the next wall, uh, that hit, there was two. And I remember my wedding was one of them. And when I got proposed to, um, and I was planning this wedding, it stressed me out so bad. I had a relapse of my Lyme and all the stuff started to flood back in my body. And I became like debilitated again. Um, was and, this around the same time or was this down the road? Cause I'm just curious down the, you road. Know, down the road. Okay. Down the road. So, um, man, chronologically we're talking, I, I was married in 2014. So I was like proposed in 20, 12 2012 so about like 13 2013 I had um another episode so I was diagnosed 09 get treatment trying to do better I know I got some um yeah and then I got my second round of treatment after in about 2013 so about 20 you got diagnosed in, in around 2009 so about four yeah. years later you got your second round of treatment correct yeah mm -hmm. okay and it was all with Invita still so there was no other other no I actually uh so great question I did not go back to Invita because at that time now I was um, engaged and I wanted to stay local and I just didn't want to like be far away. Can, um, can I back up for a second? Apologies. I just want to yeah. make sure I, I don't want to miss pieces here. So what, you know, this is your second round of treatment, but you're engaged and it sounds like you're doing a lot better. So is, is that correct? You, you mean, you sound like you made even more progress than when you left and your body needed to be rebuilt, yeah. correct? I definitely made progress. I made life changes and choices um, that got me to a space that I was I was functioning, like I would say high, high functioning. I graduated school, um, but I still had like some lingering symptoms, but not like, like to me, it was, I could deal with it. Like, you know, minor aches and pains, fatigue here and there. Maybe I needed a weekend to sleep you know, and, and rest. And I just kind of knew that that, that was just going to be part of my life. So that was kind of the four years. Right now in that four year window, can you think of some of the tools that were 
the most helpful in your either short-term or long-term healing journey, right? If you had a symptom or a flare, what was the tool that really helped you? Or what's something that you think really helped get you to where you were at the end of the four-year window from a healing standpoint? Um, so financially, um, doctor, I use Dr. Rawls protocol, the supplement protocol. That was very helpful for me. The restore kit? Yes, the restore kit. We're huge yeah. fans. If you don't know that Rich and I both take the restore kit. I think it's been, you know, huge in my healing journey and we love Dr. Roll. So I'm happy to hear that. Me too. I love him. So that was really helpful for me. That was like very low impact. That was another thing I had to go into it with like, I didn't want any more like IVs. I didn't want all these attachments. Like it felt, it felt too invasive. And I think that was why I got very weak. So I wanted something that was very digestible, so to speak. Um, so I could take supplements. So I did the restore kit. I was very ad adamant about that. I um, was very strict about a gluten-free anti-inflammatory diet um, and did you do the rolls diet that came with the restore kit? Were you that strict? No, I just was kind of generally gluten-free. I didn't do any like really, I mean, I was also, I'm in my what, like early twenties, you know, I don't, yep. I didn't really drink. I was like pretty, you know, conservative and very holistic at the time, but still I wanted to like enjoy sugar here and yes. there, which that was my biggest ball. <laughs> so I was gluten-freeing and dairy-free, um, for the most part. And then, um, I also, water was huge for me doing a, a PT in the pool. That was very helpful because I realized my body was in more pain when I was outside the pool, just from gravity pushing, like it was just like weight and I didn't have the ability to like hold it up. Like I just wasn't physically strong enough. Um, so I think PT in the pool and just getting in water, I was lucky my parents had a pool. So I'd get in their pool and just kind of relax. It was like, a weight lifted off me whenever I got in the pool. I was like, ah, oh, the pain. <laughs> um, so I would say water was really helpful in baths, hot baths, Epsom salt baths for detoxing. And I continued to do um, enemas as well. So that was all very affordable care. So tell us about the second part of your healing. So now you're four years in, I think you said around 2014-ish or losing track of time here or 2013-ish. Yeah. And yeah. you're going to go into round two. So where do you go for that? Yeah, so I... um I don't know the exact year I started treatment, but I, I actually ended up going to Dr. Bakta here in Orange County. She at the time was kind of an LLMD. Uh, she was treating Lyme patients. She was doing something called PK protocol. Uh, she was doing IV antibiotics. Is the um, PK protocol the Patricia Kane protocol? Yes. Okay. Yep. And so I did, I started the IV antibiotics. Um, because I was really, I was back to that place almost where I couldn't get out of bed. I had the chronic, uh, the debilitating chronic fatigue, the brain fog, the anxiety, debilitating anxiety, not just like, oh, I'm anxious. Like I couldn't leave the door. I was so anxious and um, a lot of chronic pain. So I ended up going back to her and she started a kind of a, a different regimen, not as invasive. And the one nice thing is I got, I got to get treatment locally. So I got to live at home and stay at home and, and, um, get the care I needed there. So give us some, some more. So tell us what exactly she was doing with you to treat, right? Cause I want to get, if you don't know, it's fine. But what specific tools she was using, whether it's herbs, whether it's supplements, whether it's antibiotics, whether it's 
you know, binders, et cetera, et cetera? You know, I, I, I'm not very keen on remembering every little detail of that treatment. Again, I felt like during treatment was kind of a blur. Um, but I do, I remember we did the PK protocol. I remember she was doing doxycycline, um, and, and another, uh, antibiotic and it's, I'm blanking on the name, but she was like interchanging them based on the hatching cycle, which I thought was really interesting where in, in Vita at the time, it was the same antibiotic every day. Mm. Hers was like, okay, we're going to take doxy for like nine days or 10 days. And then we're going to switch to this other like cephalophysis or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know the name of it, but um, that was really interesting. Um, and I think actually made a difference. And yeah. We've heard from other guests that the combination therapy of various antibiotics is far more effective than a singular antibiotic. In fact, yeah. even even studies that are done by research institutions, even the federal, you know, the CDC, they're showing that when you have severe cases, combinations of two to three antibiotics or more can be effective. And there are specific ones that are helpful for Lyme at the various phases, right? The stages of Lyme. Is it a stationary phase? Is it an active phase? And ones that are more effective for co-infection. So I think that probably that the diversity of antibiotics was deeper in eliminating and eradicating the wide variety of pathogens you got from whatever tick, you know, tick bites you may have had in your life. Yes. And I definitely noticed the difference in that. Um, and it was interesting too, like I'm sure other patients will experience or if, if they're not educated yet, when you take a certain antibiotic, it would make you, it would kind of create its own symptoms. So like I had an antibiotic that made me, a little more crazy. You know what I mean? Like I'd have a reaction or I'd feel like a little bit more on edge and like crazy. And I felt like really jittery or really itchy. And then another antibiotic would make me feel like, like kind of more mental fog and like the die off. And then I would have like weird twitches, you know? So the antibiotics did almost pinpoint different killing agents or, you know, killing different colonies. I thought that was kind of interesting looking back too because I journaled a lot of that uh the feeling sense of like what was my body feeling like I felt like this buzzing sense or like the creepy crawlers um yeah and I think the cool part about what I'm hearing for this this protocol that you had was the antibiotics were super effective at killing right and now the the Patricia Patricia Kane protocol or the PK protocol I understand it to be more of a detox protocol as well. It's a lot of natural things. And I I, I just Googled it because I know I can never pronounce the name. It's phospho, phosphatidylcholine and sodium phenylbutrate and pushes the glutathione, which we all know, uh, folic acid. And there's some other things, but essentially it, it, they increase intake of essential fatty acids, but it's, it's supporting your body to detox, all of your key organs to detox. And if you're killing off all these things, you have to support getting all this stuff out of you. So you're not going to become toxic. And I think that's a nice combination here that you're describing. Yes. So I had antibiotics that were killing. I had extensive rashes. You could see like almost like these spider veins of rashes. I did the PK protocol. It was like a 14 week protocol. I would do suppositories and I continued the enema. That was kind of always something like part of my detox routine, as well as the baths. Those always seemed to be easy to do and were like very um, effective. And then, um, then it was the restore, right? So it was the kill detox. And then the restore piece is 
when you take antibiotics, even though I had IV antibiotics, I still had a lot of gut issues. And um, so I had to repopulate the gut. And so I was doing a lot of probiotics, prebiotics, high fiber uh, diets. I, I was taking these powder shakes to make sure I was getting like a enormous amount of good colonies for my gut. And it took about, I would say almost close to three years to get my gut to a place where I felt normal. And the only time, like supplements didn't do it. Like, I'll be honest for me, supplements didn't do it. The, um, the shakes didn't do it. The only thing that got my gut back to where it was, is I did FMT and that changed everything. So can you, that can you explain it. what FMT is? And, and yeah, it's fecal microbial it. transplant and it's, um, allowed in California, it's legal for people that have a uh, C. diff, which is a dysbiosis of the gut. And I kind of went, and I'll be honest, I went on the black market, so to speak, because I was doing research on this and my gut was not healed. And the gut was also creating um, issues with my brain fog that I I, um, I think were, was semi-related to Lyme, but I also think it was like this gut-mind connection. And no matter how healthy I ate, getting rid of the gluten and dairy, I still was having this like disconnect with my stomach. I mean, I was hospitalized for stomach pain pains like multiple times, like in just within my life. So I knew the gut was something I had to heal, like post-treatment. And so I did a lot of research on FMT, found someone that can that did it for me. Um, in LA, it was a 10 day treatment, which is basically an enema. I did the enema, not the capsules um, of uh, cultured fecal. And the specific type of fecal came from um, a population in England from a clinic that they take on um, fecal there from a certain population that eats like over the, the group of people eats they eat over 40 fruits and vegetables a day. So their like colonies are like super, like super nutritious, super high, high fibrous, like just the ultimate gut essentially. And then, so they would take the fecal, freeze it, and then they would ship it. And then I, I did treatment here and I did a 10 day treatment and it was the craziest thing. I've never experienced symptoms like that either. One day I was craving like hot, like spicy food and beer. I don't drink beer. I hate it. And I don't like spicy food, but I was craving it because it was so amazing how impactful someone's bacteria in their gut is to their mind and like what they like and what they want. Um, and so that was a huge change The after I did my round of, um, FMT, I did a very strict diet for about three. Uh, it was supposed to be for like six months. I probably did about yeah, probably do about six months of a very strict diet, um, high fibrous, lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of variety, um, low in dairy and red meat, um, unless it was cultured or grass fed. So, you know, the whole, um, uh, whole 30 kind of almost and, um, low, like no fried food and nothing and no antibiotics. That was like the one key thing. I could not take anything that would kill the colony. So I was very strict whenever I got sick, which I can, I got colds here and there. I would never take anything. I would make my body fight it naturally. And I, I do do that still today because I even, I got a cold this beginning of the year and I took a Z pack and I noticed immediately I was like, ah, oh, dang it. Like 
that stupid Z pack. Now I'm like craving sugar and I want, like, I need the caffeine and I'm lethargic. And I, I noticed the shift. So I'm very sensitive to antibiotics and I avoid them today, like the plague, but that was kind of my journey with FMT um, at the time. Isn't it wild how you can take an antibiotic and all of a sudden you're craving sugar and you weren't before? I mean, the correlation of what the antibiotic does to your gut by depleting microbes, good microbes, and disrupting the balance of microbes in your gut, and then how that correlates to cravings in your brain to have sugar is a really fascinating combination of, of things, right? Yeah. And you know, we know that the, the gut health is a, at, at a minimum, it makes you more susceptible to chronic Lyme. If you're if you don't have a pretty diverse set of bacteria in your gut, you are more susceptible to chronic Lyme. And in addition to that, you know, we we love following studies like this out of Northeastern. I think it was last year they put out a, a paper about intestinal bacteria could give doctors an objective test for chronic Lyme. And I'll kind of jump to an interesting part that relates to you know your your gut health and the microbes in your gut that people with chronic Lyme have two distinct differences in their microbial levels compared to other normal groups. They have an abundance of a type of bacteria called Blautia, B-L-A-U-T-I-A, and a suppression of a type of bacteria called bacterioids, B-A-C-T-E-R-O-I-D-E-S. And this was consistent across all chronic Lyme patients, right? So when you're seeing that in their gut microbiome, they have an abundance of one that is unusual in your in your you know normal patient study, uh, or let's just say your control study of normal people, and you have a suppression of another, there, that that's a huge indicator, right? What does that mean? And they're still studying that to this day, but I think there's a lot of things we're gonna learn by studying the gut that are gonna help the chronic Lyme community and the chronic illness community in general. And you're not the first person, although you, you, you described it the best in my opinion, to talk about fecal implants, because I think there's a lot of value there to bring a diverse set of, you know, you have billions of, of types of strains of bacteria in your gut. And when you do a really healthy sample and you, you put that back into you, you're giving your body a fighting chance and jumpstarting it to be able to do all the things it needs to do because of the connection between your gut and your brain and your immune system, right? It's really sort of like the the control center, I feel like, right? I mean, so it's really fascinating and I digress, but I just wanted to kind of weigh in on, on my views on that as well. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge supporter of FMT. I I wish more people can do it. I think um, it for me, I felt like it was very non-invasive. I didn't have a lot of symptoms from it, but only benefits from it. Um, so I think it was it was great. I'm a huge supporter. So what else what else did you do? Um, well, I guess you said you was there was two times, right? So you you got engaged before your wedding, you went back. This gave you the rebound you needed. And then it sounds like at this point you you got married. Walk us through that part of your life, Kenzie. And then you know, it, I think there was a third. And I and if I'm mistaken, you can correct me. I think there was a no, one more right. time you had to go back, right? Okay, no, Matt, you're feeling better than I am. Jeez. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then I got another. I got again. I had to go through treatment because I had another relapse. And at the time, um, uh, I was going. I think it was. I, I was with Bakta still as well. But this time. I did um, just hydration and I was doing a, a, a more mild antibiotic at the time. And I, again, I'm, I'm slipping on the antibiotic name. I'm, that's not my strong point, but I was taking, I got to do it at my house. So I had another pick line in my pick line got infected long story short. So I've had a lot of pick lines and um, I was doing a mild antibiotic. I was getting treatment done at my house. Um, and I, I, 
I don't know what the antibiotic was, but it didn't really seem to be doing anything. And then I just kind of like after two and a half, three months, I think it was, cause I think I was supposed to be on it for three months. I was kind of done. I was like, you know what? Like I'm done with treatment. I'm giving up because I kind of had these continuously cycle relapses, but then I was like feeling really strong and, and to be a little bit ahead of myself. One thing I wish I learned is just because I was feeling strong didn't mean I got to I got to do everything I could, I could. Cause I, then I was like, oh, well now I'm going to like eat a little bit of this. And then I'm going to like do a little bit of this and maybe I'll stay up late one night. And then I'll do, I started breaking down that very strict routine that I had. And that's what also continued to weaken my immune system and potentially cause that relapse. Right. Yeah. So Candy, you're, you're making me think so rich and I, in our minds, right. This is something we try to use in our, in our own healing. And we talk to other people about, and we're going to talk more about in the future, but you're kind of indirectly outlining our approach to healing and I want to get your thoughts on it, right? So there's four stages and we kind of hinted at it earlier. We have the prehab or the prehabilitate phase, which is basically build your body up before treatment, right? You got to strengthen your body, open up your detox pathways, drainage pathways, rebuild your liver, your nervous system, your emotional health, you know, all that stuff. The assist, which is going to be, you know, the A phase, the assist, which is basically assist your immune system to treat Lyme. And that that's also the kill phase. You can combine that with antibiotics, herbals, whatever. That's really more the kill phase of get rid of all the pathogens that you have, Lyme and whatever else, because it's never just Lyme disease. And then <clears throat> the rehab phase, which is, all right, you kind of touched on this, right? When I did all the antibiotics, but my gut was destroyed. So I did fecal implants to help rehab my body. And that was a huge step for you. But then again, after that, that round, you had a third way where you had to go back and treat because you kind of went back to an unhealthy lifestyle. And that's the phase that I that I think a lot of us struggle with when we get to that part, which is the maintenance phase, right? We have to we have to enter a maintenance mode to prevent a Lyme relapse. And you used the word, I had a relapse again, right? And I think if we aren't rigid in our maintenance phase of our healing journey, then we're more likely to have a relapse. And we call it PARM, P-A-R-M. It's our acronym for healing. You know, Can you give us your thoughts on it? Because it's something we just kind of came up with for fun, but you're really touching on it without us even really addressing it. I, I just wanted to get your thoughts. Loving PARM right now. Um, totally. Um, the rehab was definitely something, um, or the prehab was something I totally missed when with my treatment. So it was really difficult to get through that healing phase. And then, um, you know, yeah, um, the assist was totally part of the process. That was, that was the easy part, right? Like the killing and the treatment. Um, the rehab was not as easy because the majority, um, of the physicians weren't sure how to repair the body after the fact, they only knew how to like really kill until later on. And they're like, Oh yeah, we got a detox. And then we got a support. And like, what does that support look like? And it might look different for everybody. For me, my gut was destroyed and my body was weak. So I needed support through um, nutrition and I needed proper support through um, FMT. And FMT, again, like changed my life. But then having to go through antibiotics again, which I was really uh, really resilient to do, I just didn't want to do it. Um, And then ended up killing off that colony and having to do FMT again, because this time I knew going into it, that worked and that repaired something that I needed. And then from there, I knew the maintenance was key. And I do other treatment, um, you know, for maintenance today, um, not, you know, FMT is, is expensive. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to get covered by insurance and it's not covered in many States, um, or allowed in many States. So I just want to be fully transparent about that. And then, um, I also, um, 
I do. Um, I'm blanking on the name and I can't believe that. Um, uh, okay. It'll come back to me, but I, I, I do other treatments that really support my overall, um, my overall fatigue and energy and my mental capability, especially my chronic pain, because chronic pain has always been something I haven't really totally gotten rid of. And I think it is because I'm not, I'm missing that piece of the maintain, right? I, I'm missing the the continued PT because I have to make the time to do that. And my okay. life is not allowing me to make that time. And so I, I live in that space of pain. But then I know that I'm like, Kenzie, you need to do this if you're going to get that benefit. So that's really important to me. That was, I can relate to that very much. And I think that's, that's, it's, it's really cool to see you being able to make those kind of connections, right? About where you're at in your healing journey and, yeah. and understanding why and how that, that occurred. Right. So uh, Rich is going to jump in after this question, but is there anything else that we missed from a treatment standpoint that you want to share? Because we really, Rich has got to talk to you about, I mean, you, you authored three books. One, you talked about the line book. We're going to jump into that. We're going to talk about you. You founded your own holistic health company, Holistic Umbrella. You are on the board of directors of the Global Lyme Alliance. And I mean, that's a really cool story about you going to New York City and, and you know, joining GLA and then being awarded last year at their gala. So before Rich takes over and goes into that part of this, this discussion, is there anything you want to share that we missed when it comes to a successful part of your healing journey or a warning, right? Don't do this. And anything you want to share with our listeners who are struggling to heal right now? Yes. The one thing um, I remember, the one treatment that's really been an impact for me, again, not super um, accessible because it's expensive, but ketamine treatment. I don't know if that's something you've talked about on your podcast before, but has been very beneficial for me in overall um, chronic pain as well as mental health. And that has really pivoted the way I think about the world, like in general, I know that sounds like a big concept, but getting into a space, I was never a kid that did drugs or, you know, drank or much. So I was very nervous and very anxious about trying this treatment. But when I was recommended it and I did it the first time, it was kind of an odd feeling. I was just very numb and lethargic. The second time I really got into a headspace that really put life into perspective and allowed me to understand that where I was at in the world is okay. And that was something I really needed in my life. I needed to know it was okay that I'm still in a healing process. And that I, because I, I still mentally was stuck in this space that I had to be well to be successful. And it's not true. We're kind of all going through this cycle in life. And there's part of my, there's, you know, times in my life I wasn't well, or there's days I don't feel my best. And that's okay. And that ketamine got me to that perspective sense. And obviously having kids and growing and maturing and, you know, getting confident and building, you know, my life and my career, I don't want to lose that. So the maintain piece now is the most important piece. And, and, and part of that maintenance piece is making sure my mind is very healthy. And I, I steer away from negative people, negative energy. I, I really am, am blessed. I'm positive. I stay hopeful. I fight when I have a bad day. I say, okay, body, what do you need? I, let me give it to you to my best capability and then keep moving forward and re regime and, and regimen and having a diet and having, um, you know, my life scheduled out and my supplements at the right time and all the things I need is super critical. If I need my sleep, I need my sleep and I need to tell my husband, Hey, you're helping with the kids or, 
I need to tell my nanny, hey, you're doing this, or my mom, hey, I need your help, asking for help too. So those are all really important things, regimen, ask for help, and keep an open mind. So Kenzie, let's let's uh, walk one piece back before uh, before sure. we move to the transformation, which is uh, one of the things we understand during the rehab phase, you know, as as Italians, Matt and I are always going to bring Parmesan or some other Italian food into our frameworks, right? Hey. So yeah. that, that's right. So uh, so in, in Parm, one of the things that we understand is during the rehab phase, you have to rebuild your gut because these treatments are going to kill your gut. And Lyme probably itself is going to, you know, it, it, when you become chronically ill, it's going to alter your, your, your gut health. Um, but you also have to rewire your brain, right? I mean, your brain has been jumbled. Is it because of the bugs in your brain? Is it because of the bad experiences you have? Is it because you've been gaslit? Is that a combination of all that? But you can have these unhealthy neural pathways that have to be rewired. And the way you did it is with the ketamine treatment, right? You use ketamine as a vehicle for rewiring your brain. Yeah. You can move forward with, with having uh, you know, a, a, a healthy, uh, rehabilitated uh, brain. Uh, and, you, and you rebuilt your gut through um, you know, the FMT um, uh, protocol, right? Now you're in a place where, where you're now in maintenance, right? And what does maintenance mean? It means listening to your body it means listening to your 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 emotions being the sentient person that you know we can be when we become more competent as opposed to confident or we've we moved away from that term right and it's really just having a self-care regimen that allows you to be what you can be yes allowing yourself grace and knowing what your body needs and and being an advocate for your body and listening is is the best advice you could give someone with any chronic illness and, and just anyone in life people you know everybody's going through something and being mindful of that because i can't tell you how many times people even knew i was sick and they would say things like well you look good at least you you're pretty at least you you know and i'm like you have no idea and that was even more debilitating right so um, well, it's triggering, right? I mean, it's it's another thing that that when you say to a fragile a person with a fragile trigger, that is going to send them into a place where they're not going to be in a healing mode because they're they're going to be triggered into the sympathetic expression of their nervous system. Right, right. You said it. Um, and yeah, ma maintenance is the biggest piece of the healing journey, and um, I think. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a combination of things that you need to be strict about for yourself and knowing that you're surrounding yourself in the right environment, as I mentioned before, because if you're putting yourself on, you know, the Facebook pages that people are just chronically ill and expressing the, 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 the negativity or the darkness of that space, it can be, that can be infectious too. And so it's really, you know, finding that that area where you're thriving, you have a purpose and you're doing the right things, fulfilling your body for your overall health that continues to project you forward and getting light uh, to do that too. So if it's, if it's prayer, if it's family, if it's, you know, connection, um, that's on the mental side. And then definitely uh, one of the big pieces is um, the diet, right? And and what you're taking in, what you're consuming, your nutrition and fulfilling that and fulfilling the body. So it's fulfilling the mind, fulfilling the body, and then fulfilling the spirit. It's really holistic. 
And one of the things you have to make sure that you're doing, just as you wanted to make sure that you don't ruin your gut health by taking more antibiotics or um, or any kind of medication that could ruin your gut health, especially after you rebuilt it through the FMT therapy. But you also want to make sure you're, you're guarding your brain, right? And one of the things that the, the brilliant Tony Robbins talks about is how people can upload into our brain really unhealthy thoughts, which then can build unhealthy neural pathways, which you needed the, you know, you needed to rebuild it. In your case, it was through the through the, the ketamine treatment, right? But yeah. you know, just because just because you were able to rewire your brain through using that, you know, that very powerful tool doesn't mean that if you put yourself in a position where you're in these, you know, these groups that are unhealthy on what on one level or another, whether they be Lyme groups or not, that what's happening is you're not guarding your brain and you're allowing really unhealthy software to be uploaded into your brain. Yeah. I love that you put it that way. I think that's really philosophical. <laughs> it's good. It's well said. It is true. I mean, you know, social media is, you know, it's a whole different topic that is greatly influencing our society today. And so we do have to be mindful of what we're consuming um, out there. And I think if it doesn't serve you, don't give it time. So now let's, um, and, and that's with anything, right? I mean, that's part of maturing in into this maintenance phase where during the prehabilitation phase, you're developing some tools which you're bringing to the assist phase and developing more tools that you're bringing to the rehab phase, which you're bringing with you to the maintenance phase. And all of these things you put built into your toolbox, you now take with you so that you can have all of the habits that are healthy, not for humans generally, but specifically for you. You get to understand your body. You get to understand your brain. You understand how to read your emotions. You understand what it is you need to do to remain um, healthy and be the person you can be. And part of that, of course, is taking with you what these experiences have taught you about you spiritually, right? What were you made to do and how can you serve? Because one of the things we all learn when we get to a point um, where we've made this transformation is that a basic human need is to serve others, right? So talk to us now about how you learned about the importance of, of, of serving others as part of your maintenance and how you understand that the only way that you can be joyful is by serving and how that presented itself in the, in the creation of that beautiful book that you've written, working you know, in various not-for-profit arenas and, 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 and serving um, you know, the, the community of people you serve through uh, the business that you're uh, you're the vice president of. Beautiful. Um, yes, totally, Rich. I'm my serve my service to the Lyme community and others is is part of my healing journey, and it's gotten me um, to mentally to a place that I can sustain the workload and stress that I have in my life without having that relapse, and that's really important. It brings me purpose. It. Um, it guides, it's like the North Star, it's guiding me to something bigger and better. And I do believe that I had to go through suffering to really realize what um, true happiness was or what um, uh, Father Spitzer calls joy. There's an amazing book about happiness and the levels of happiness. And there's very superficial happiness, which is the majority of what people seek, but it doesn't bring you happiness until you lose something detrimental. And when I lost my health, I lost, I thought I lost it all. And when I realized that I gained that back, I wanted to make sure that I was bringing 
I came to a place of appreciating joy and true happiness. And I wanted to give that back to other people and help lift them up from a dark place or know that they're not alone. Like every, you know, almost every person I've met with a chronic illness or is in a suffering state feels alone, that they're the only person going through this. And that's just simply not true. There are people suffering like you are suffering. You just need to find the right people to help you through it. And it's not trying to relate maybe, or it might not be a direct relation, a lateral relation, but understanding that, hey, they've suffered and they've fought their way out of it to get to a better place. That alone gives people hope. And so I wanted to come back into the community and not just go, oh, okay, well, now I'm in a better place. So I'm just going to go work and make money and, you know, be happy in my life. That wasn't serving me. I could do that and I can continue to do that. But that wasn't what was filling my cup at the end of the day. There was something missing. And so when I I kept, you know, having restless night's sleep and thinking, okay, what is it? What's missing, Kenzie? Like you're feeling great. You got a great career. You're having a, you know, you have a kid. What are you going to do now? And it kept, Lyme kept pulling me back in the Lyme community and that there was still a need out there. And it was still under, it was still an underserved community. It's undereducated. People don't know about it even to this day. And when I shared my story more publicly, it was amazing how it was just overwhelming. The people that were like, oh my gosh, I know somebody with Lyme. Oh my gosh, I need your help. I love for you to talk to this one person and da, 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 da. And it was it was so fulfilling. People are like, do you have time? And I was like, I'll make time. Like, yeah, not really. No, I don't have time, but I'll make time because I believe in the mission. And I believe if there's a reason you're connecting with me, there's a reason I, there's something I can do to help you. Even if it's getting you a suggested doctor or relating to a symptom you have, or, you know, the majority of people who come to me, they don't, they don't have their diagnosis yet. So they're like, what does that look like? How do I get diagnosed? What is the testing I should look into? And then that's why I also wanted to partner with GLA, not to just be a Google expert or an Instagram expert, but also be at the front lines of like groundbreaking research to support the community with what is what is the groundbreaking research in the Lyme space? What's new and improving in the diagnostic space and in the treatment space? And I wanted to be at the front lines of that so I could provide the most accurate and up-to-date information to the community that was reaching out to me. And that's 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 really a beautiful description and a beautiful way to tie up this podcast, which again, we thank you and your husband and your children for sharing you with us for uh, the last two hours. So we don't take you away from those those uh, important people in your life any longer. Let me ask you the final question that we now ask everyone on the Think Bootcamp podcast. So if um, if I were to ask you, what are the three most important low cost or no cost treatment options that you'd recommend to a new person in the community? What would they be? Podcasts, <laughs> um, education, get educated, get to know about your diagnosis if you're new to it or you had a friend that told you that they were just diagnosed or recently exposed to it. Get educated. Learn. Okay, so. Education is number one, particularly okay. through the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Yeah. Okay. Or number two. And, and my book, Ignored Pandemic. All right. So so number two is education number, through, through yeah. reading. Yeah. Well, I would say education is just a big global thing. I need, okay. Secondarily, number two, um, I would say is really in nutrition. Um, making pivotal life choices through 
um, dietary action. So really fulfilling your body with the right nutrition, because I think that's part of the prehab, rehab and maintenance phase is really what we're putting in the body and what we are, what we eat. And it will make a difference in the treatment phase. It makes a difference in the healing phase and it makes a difference in the maintenance phase. So being mindful of that, that uh, nutrition. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to characterize number one as becoming more competent through education, using tools like podcasts and books like yours. Number two, it's going to be nutrition, being very careful about what you put in your body because you you um, need to recognize that uh, having a sound nutritional foundation is going to be necessary for you to heal. And choice number three. This is a hard one, but I would say, okay, what's going to come naturally? What came first? Find your joy. And it could be simply a hobby that you love, like doing art or like whatever it may be, keep doing that and stick to that hobby that you're passionate about because that also brings a sense of healing and calming that there's a place and an outlet for you to go. If it's listening to music, if it's, you know, building websites, if it's um, designing on, you know, creating Pinterest boards, whatever it may be, it could be something simple or big. But I think that's really important for people. They lose their passion when struggling with illness and then it's really hard to get out of that dark space so finding joy in every day your okay, so num number one is competence becoming more competent through education number two is going to be building a strong nutritional foundation by eating uh sound foods and number three i'm actually going to characterize for you as uh, finding purpose. One of the things that the brilliant Anthony Burroughs has uh, has taught through his research, Cornell University professor, actually you have a certificate from Cornell, so one of your alma maters, is, um, is that one of the three ways you can find your purpose is by doing the things you've always enjoyed doing and looking look at at what that what insight you gain by doing the things you're always doing and why you've always done that. So we can now um, free of charge, figure out those things we've always enjoyed doing and, and help that to define what our purpose is and how we will ultimately be, be serving the community and finding joy so we can stay in a healthy maintenance phase. Yes, lovely, lovely summed up. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kenzie, for spending so much time with us here on Tick Boot Camp. I know the folks in our community are really going to value all of the wonderful lessons you've taught us. I'm, I'm very appreciative. Thank you so much.